Welcome, I'm Rose Aguilar, and this is your call. This week, we are marking the Day of Remembrance for Japanese-American incarceration during World War II. It has been 82 years since President Franklin Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066, which authorized the Secretary of War and the military to remove people of Japanese ancestry from their homes and relocate them to concentration camps across the country. The order led to the incarceration of more than 120,000 Japanese Americans between 1942 and 1946. We've been doing a series about this for the past few years, and you can find our last few shows at yourcallradio.org. Today, we are so happy to be speaking with David Moss Masumoto about his new book, Secret Harvests, a hidden story of separation and the resilience of a family farm. It is a beautiful book. It tells the story of his aunt, Shiziko, who was disabled and taken as a, quote, ward of the state in 1942, just before the rest of Moss's family were forced into World War II concentration camps. They were sent to the Gila River Relocation Center in the Arizona desert, south of Phoenix. For 70 years, his family believed Shiziko had died until one day Moss received a phone call. He found out she was alive at age 92 and living just a few miles away from their family farm. In Secret Harvests, Moss attempts to reconstruct his aunt's life and pierce the veil of silence surrounding her disability and her survival. He also writes about his family's incarceration in Arizona and organic farming, which he says also has a story and a secret. David Moss Masumoto is an organic peach and grape farmer and the author of 12 books, including Epitaph for a Peach, Four Seasons on My Family Farm, and Harvest Sun, Planting Roots in American Soil. He, along with his wife Marcy and daughter Nikiko, published a family farm cookbook, The Perfect Peach, in 2013. He's also a columnist for the Fresno Bee and the Sacramento Bee. Hi, Moss. Thank you so much for this beautiful book, and thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you very much, Rose, and thank you for really recognizing and honoring all Japanese Americans and the community and the legacy that we carry within us. Well, you know, Moss, it's been such an amazing experience for us because we've been doing shows around Japanese incarceration for about two to three years now. And so many descendants of survivors who come on our show say our parents, our grandparents never talked about it. In fact, I'll never forget one guest came on and it was the first time he ever talked about his family's history. And you, you write that your family was reserved. You say you're not a, from a family of storytellers. A silence hovered over your family gatherings as you learned to accept and explore the unspoken. So can you tell us more about that? In many ways, I grew up with this image of, you know, the Japanese Americans first and second generation, the Issei and Nisei. My grandparents and my parents were part of this quiet Americans. And that was the image that I grew up with. Uh, certainly out on our farm, uh, my, my dad was very stoic. Uh, he told very, very few stories and he, he really, as I learned later, told his his story through his work and his in the hands that he worked on in the fields and how he expressed himself that way so i grew up with that again we were not a family of storytellers i was the youngest one so i tended to be a little more vocal about things and asking a lot of questions uh, but we we grew up with this silence that I sort of accepted. I thought this is what happens in all families. They don't tell stories about their experiences that they went through. Uh, and coupled with that was also that my fact that my grandmother, who lived with us for many years, she only spoke Japanese. And I, being a third generation sansei, uh, Japanese American, uh, did not speak Japanese. So I thought, well, this is normal. We don't talk to our grandparents about anything. Uh, I happen to uh, have been an exchange student from UC Berkeley to Japan for about two years. I learned Japanese. I came back and wanted to have that first conversation with my grandmother. Uh, and as a side note, I sat down and uh, spoke in my best Japanese that it's, I'm honored, you know, to have this conversation. And she spoke back to me and she spoke in a dialect of Kumamoto Ben, which is a really harsh dialect from Japan that I didn't <laughs> quite understand uh, but it was part of that symbol of this family legacy that I grew up with 
with hidden stories uh, all through our lives. And just to learn a bit more about your background, your family were immigrants from rural Japan, Kumamoto on your father's side and Hiroshima on your mother's side. Yes, exactly. And they, they came from, you know, rural backgrounds. Uh, they were country folk. Inaka is the term that the Japanese often use almost in a pejorative way, too. Uh, and it, just a side note, you know, uh, I remember, uh, when, right before I went to Japan, I asked my grandmother, you know, in with a, a translator, too, to say, Hey, can you write our name in Japanese? Cause when I go to Japan, I want to know how to write the kanji, uh, for our name. And she got a pencil and she scratched on a piece of paper an X. And I then realized she was illiterate. She Mm -hmm. was from the country. They didn't go to school. And that was part of that idea that, so how does she remember family stories? And it would go through this kind of hidden, quiet, secret oral tradition that I wanted to sort of delve into. And I spent the rest of my life slowly trying to unpack these kind of hidden oral traditions that are part of our family and I think many Japanese American families. You write about your legacy as an immigrant family. And I have to say, Moss, just reading about that made me think about the the immigration, the ugly immigration debate that we're having in this this country today. Mm-hmm. And about why so many people come to the United States. If you don't mind me asking, who in your family came to the U.S. and why did they decide to make that move? Well, I think a lot of this idea is this theory of push and pull of immigrants. They're being pushed from a, their home country, often by economic, if not political dynamics. And I think that's what you're witnessing today. And to pull the allure of America to be this land of, of freedom, this land of dreams, uh, where they hope to establish themselves. Um, a side note with many Japanese American families, my grandfathers were second sons. They were not the eldest son in Japan. So they were not destined to inherit the family farm. So they did not have much of a future and they came to America hoping to find a new life here. Uh, And I think looking at the immigration debate now, we forget these different forces that are pushing people and pulling them at the same time. And also we tend to quickly neglect that many of our own families, our ancestors, were part of this. Uh, and they came for very, very many different reasons. And we t- tend to neglect that, that no, this is part of the legacy of America. And how do we cope with this whole uh, idea of America as a place where people come for their dreams and also being pushed from their homeland because of really challenging situations and dynamics? That's the underlying story I think of a lot of our legacy of our families that within a year, generation or two, we either quickly forget or in many cases is unspoken. Right, right. And then you think about the, the, the push to assimilate and what that means. As you write, your family were Buddhist in a Christian land, settling in the isolated countryside outside of Fresno, California. So it's not like you were in San Francisco where you had so many Asians coming to San Francisco. I'm I'm not sure what Fresno was like. Were there a lot of Japanese and Asian people when your family settled there? There was certainly a, a collection of some Chinese that had come earlier, but they tended to be, you know, ones that worked on the railroads, but not a very large population. Fresno, back when my grandparents uh, immigrated, which was the late 1800s and the early 1900s, was fairly small and realized it was very rural. Uh, mm-hmm. And again, it was rural, but filled with immigrants who came. Uh, but once you got settled, it was sort of like, well, we're first here, so we're the natives. Uh, and they actually weren't, right? Uh, but uh, my uh, family came and it was a very common policy back then and like a lot of immigrant groups, a lot from Kumamoto and Hiroshima came to the Fresno area. Why? Because the first arrivals would send letters back to the homeland and especially like for the little village, Takamura, that my uh, Masamoto side came from, they would send letters back to this little village saying, you know, there's some work here, you should come. And that's why a lot of people 
came here. And once they came here, too, they found, quote, people of their own kind, meaning those that spoke their little dialects, Kumamoto Bend, for example. And they felt a little camaraderie here. And it was how these communities were built in many, many immigrant cases. Uh, they were built around this kind of bond of social networking and social contact that was very, very important. Because who do you depend on when you arrive? It's people like you in the same situation. There are many instances in your book where you grapple with asking too many questions or disrespecting <laughs> your family members' wishes. Can you talk about this, Moss? Because we, we're living at a time where you could sit down with your grandmother with your phone and take a, a, an amazing five-minute video interview of her and have that to cherish 20 years down the road. So how did you walk that line, given that your family didn't share that many family secrets? Uh this was, I think, very common of a lot of immigrant families and, and sort of like you could almost call it the generational trauma we inherit. Uh, life was challenging. Life was difficult. Uh, so they don't want to talk about those tough things. And also for many immigrants, the, the, the lesson to become American was to be quiet, to be silent about the past and invent yourself in a new way. And that's the kind of culture I grew up in. Uh, interestingly, when I first came back to the farm, because I ran away, like all good farm kids, I ran away. I went to Berkeley because I thought that would be the campus and that my studies would never bring me back to the farm. And in a, in a wild way, it brought me back to the farm. Uh, but when I came back, uh, I looked around and there were all these stories that I began to hear from neighbors, these farm family farms that I grew up with, and I never heard about them. So I started doing oral histories, just getting their stories. But the secret for me, and I think for many communities, isn't the first question it's the second and third question you ask that probe a little deeper. And you have to be ready to accept silence as being part of, of that, part of that, that legacy that, that's part of that story. And then how do you sort of probe deep? And, um, maybe because I was the youngest, I felt a little more free to just keep asking questions of my aunts and my uncles, my parents. And it was, a quick story. When I first came back to the farm, my dad, who's hardly, hardly, we talked much, uh, for like the first year, I had every lunch with him for a year. And he would start telling me one story over lunch, like one line that he, uh, that he said, Hey, you know, there's these boxes of dynamite in our barn. Uh, just be careful about it. And I go, what is dynamite doing in our barn? And he wouldn't tell me until the next lunch. And it took like 30 days to hear the whole story about the dynamite in our farm. And by the way, he used it to blow up the hard pan rock that was on our farm. Why did, was our farm filled with hard pan rock? Because it made the land cheap and affordable for him to buy the farm right after World War II. So that's all part of that story. But it took a month just to get that one story out. And that's where I think the power of asking questions come in, ask that second and third and fourth question. And that gets to the real, real heart of these stories. But you got to be around that uh, and hang out a lot to get to those stories. <laughs> right. Today, we are speaking with David Mas Masumoto about his beautiful new memoir, Secret Harvests, a hidden story of separation and the resilience of a family farm. If you have any questions or comments, if you'd like to talk about family stories, maybe your family, especially if your family was sent to Japanese to concentration camps during World War II, and they didn't share their story. Maybe they did later in life. If you'd like to share any of those, we'd love to hear from you. 866-798-8255. You can also email your call at kalw.org. So talk about when you learned about what happened to your family when they were sent to the Gila River Relocation Center in the Arizona desert, just south of Phoenix. It began with a lot of euphemisms and i can now understand why for example they didn't call them concentration camps uh you know internment centers they never used the word prisoners and really in hindsight they were prisoners of war they were forced to be uprooted from uh their homes here in the fresno area and go to an uncertain future where they didn't know how long 
if ever they'd be released from this prison in the Arizona desert. But they use euphemism, words like we went to camp, we were in camp. So I grew up with this idea that camp, oh, okay, I went to some summer camps when I was a child. And, you know, it's where you, you know, have barbecues and you, you know, roast marshmallows and walk around in the woods. So this image of camp life came up. Uh, and only later when I started probing through that more, I began to realize, one, why they called it those kind of terms, because it was a way of them trying to deal with this very, very harsh reality. Uh, and at the same time, it was a way of them, I think, trying to protect us kids from this harsh, gruesome reality of what it was to be not an American, yet being American. Uh, and it was only really in college that I began to learn more of the stories and then coming home and asking more of the questions. So that helped me set up for when I got this phone call that this lost aunt was still alive. Uh, it helped me prepare for unveiling and exploring this family secrets that almost all Japanese American families hold dear to them. How old was your mom when she was sent to these concentration camps? Again, it was a very, very different experience. My dad had just finished high school and he was looking for, in 1942, looking for a new life in the world. My mom was 13, a freshman in high school. So she had a very, very different experience with that. And it was important for me to recognize those differences because there was a difference in perspective because I could then start thinking, oh, if I was, you know, just graduated high school or college and had this whole world in front of me and it got pulled away, I would take a certain perspective. But if I was a 13-year-old and freshman in high school and suddenly you go to this relocation center where there's 10,000 other Japanese Americans like you it would be a very different experience. And we have to realize those were the type of experiences that unfolded in this kind of uprooting of Americans. And she spent four years there? Yeah, I mean, again, wild stories that's almost unbelievable. She went Mm. and went to high school in in the Gila River Relocation Center, graduated from high school where my dad was, was struggling and lost and he got drafted into the U.S. Army out of the relocation center. Oh so you gosh. had these wild <laughs> dynamics. And I you would tell wow. my dad that, you know, uh, you got drafted. And he said, yeah. And it was part of that uh, mm. very, very difficult situation where the U.S. government uh, needed soldiers. So they posed this loyalty questionnaire for Japanese Americans. Mm. You know, would they be loyal and, and disavow their allegiance to the emperor of Japan? And would they be willing to serve in the United States Armed Forces? And it split many communities and many families where some people said no and uh, many of these males were called no-no boys because they said no we were you imprison us and now you want us to fight for this country that believes in freedom and they became no-no boys and in many ways they became ostracized within the Japanese community while other families like my father said, no, I I want to fight for my country. And to back up the story a little more, uh, my father was a second son. His oldest brother had already been in the army in 1942 when the Japanese were interned. So he fought with the 442nd and he died in France during that time. So, and we had a, they had a memorial service at Gila River for him. Uh, And it was these bizarre sets of contrasts that you almost can't believe unfolded, but this was life back then. This was all part of that legacy that was part of who I am now today, and I'm still trying to uh, decipher and, and unfold this these family dynamics and family secrets. Gosh, it, it's so amazing when you think about it, Moss. What happened when your family and so many others got out of these concentration camps to wonder Will I be sent back? I mean, you can't even imagine the level of stress. There were so many stories I, during these oral histories. I began to get stories of who were the first ones that left the relocation concentration camps. And they tended to be someone who had property or a farm. Mm. Uh, and they came back early because there was something to come back to. I heard one story of a, of a great, um, wonderful family that did own a farm. They came back 
to the farm. The house had been burned down during the war. The, the land was somewhat taken care of by a neighbor. But the daughter told me the story that they went to the neighbor's house to try to see if they could get any of their belongings. And the, and the uh, Caucasian family, who were okay people, uh, said, oh, why don't you come in for some tea? So they sat down for tea and she was served tea in their family's teacups. Mm. And I said, how can you, how can you tolerate that? But that was that dynamic. Our family did not own property before the war, like many, many Japanese Americans. So my family, both the, on the Masamoto and Sugimoto sides, were one of the last to leave the relocation centers because they didn't know what to come back to. They didn't know what would be back here. So I remember hearing the story of the of my grandmother uh, and grandfather who caught the train to Fresno and came back to a little town called Selma, which is south of Fresno. And they found another Japanese-American family who had owned a grocery store. And they were family friends. And they allowed them to sleep on the floor for, of the grocery store for a couple weeks uh, until the grocery store wanted to open up and get back into business. And then my family had to scramble to try to find some housing for that. And, and it's just unbelievable. And during this time, Remember, the eldest son, the number one son in Japanese patriarchal culture tended to be the one that controlled things. He had died fighting for the U.S. in the uh, in France. My dad was still number two son, drafted, and he had just come back from Europe right after the war. And this was he he was he told me the story of how he was greeted. He comes back to the Fresno area, sleeps on the floor and tries to relax being out of the army. And my grandmother wakes him up at night and says, Hey, you gotta find a job. We need to get out. We can't stay here anymore. So that was my dad's as a being a, a US veteran, his welcome home was to this kind of reality. Wow. Well you also write about how there were so many racist policies toward Japanese Americans in the U.S. and in the, in the 19th and 20th centuries. And you write Japanese Americans had alien land laws in the West Coast that prevented them from owning land. So your grandparents, for example, who immigrated to the U.S. in the early 1900s could not own land. So here your father comes back from serving in the army and I'm sure has to deal with a lot of racism. There were dynamics, and, and we forget how those alien land laws impacted our all Japanese Americans, all Orientals, as they called them back then, from owning property, and it changed the course of these communities. And again, these were called alien land laws specifically targeting, quote, Orientals. Mm. And there was a court case that was in the California Supreme Court questioning because at the same time Armenians were being were being driven off from their homeland with the Armenian genocide and they came to the Fresno area too and settled and there was this court case are Armenians Asians and they're part therefore part of this uh alien land uh, uh law that couldn't prevent them or are they not alien uh Asians and the ruling came that they were considered white Asians so they could buy property and they bought property and changed their course of their families where many Japanese Americans were part of this alien land law and could not buy it and they often sometimes bought land in a child's name that who was born in America as American citizen. So my our family comes back landless trying to figure out what to do and my and my dad made this bold decision. He realized to become American you had to buy a piece of America. So he went out and gambled in 1948 where our family was struggling. They were farm workers. He bought this 40 acres that became our family farm. Uh, and again, he bought it because it was cheap, full of this hard pen rock. Un, un, you couldn't farm this land. Uh, and he took this big gamble. And he told me this story. Again, this was a story that unfolded after over weeks of conversation. He said that he came home and told my grandmother and grandfather that I bought a farm. And my grandfather was overjoyed. He said, this is wonderful. We finally could have a home. My grandmother, who was bitterly scarred by all the dynamics of the racism and the internment, he said, she said to my dad, you are a fool. You buy land like it's a sack of rice. In America, they take things away. 
you should not have done that. So my dad told the story that he uh, told his mom, my grandmother, that no, we bought this farm. We're going to go drive to the farm this evening. And she said, no, I'm not going to go. You are a fool. So my dad said, I'm going to wait in the car until sunset and drive to the new farm. My grandfather said, okay. And he got in the car. Mm -hmm. And my uh, dad and my grandfather waited until sunset. And my grandmother finally came out of the house carrying the suitcase, a black leather suitcase that had the internment numbers for our family stenciled on the side in white letterings. And she came, got in the car, and silently they went to the new farm, the Masamoto family farm, in silence. Mm. It wasn't a celebration. It was a moment, I think, that captured that dynamic and that legacy of Japanese Americans and the and the challenges that they faced. And yet... The hope that my dad had to say, no, we want to be Americans. We are Americans. Wow. And here we are, and you're still farming on that very yeah. land. Yeah, it's it's part of that legacy. I mean, I whenever we work that one field for the hard pan, I always think of that. And hard pan rock, by the way, for those who don't know what hard pan rock is, it's really mineralized clay. It's where all the water has been sucked out of it and it forms these kind of sheets under the topsoil. Sometimes inches below, sometimes feet below. Uh, and it's almost, uh, it's like a symbolic barrier of what, uh, uh, the land was to these immigrants and how they had to work so hard. Ironically, as I worked that land, these chunks of hard pen float to the surface, sort of like an iceberg popping up. And whenever I see one, I grab it, I clear it out. And I think this is part of the legacy that defined our family and continues to define us as we understand these stories, this emotional trauma, this this generational trauma that defines not just Japanese Americans, but all immigrants. And we need to understand that's part of our story and part of the story of America. Before we go to break, Moss, since you brought up the farm and farming, I just love how you describe farming. As you say, it really is a character in your book. You write, I farm with ghosts. They live in our fields. Each peach tree has pruning scars from the generations who worked these orchards. Every vine has been shaped by the hands of workers who returned each year to add their touch to the sculpture. People and their families have etched their marks on my farm, and I too hope to leave behind a simple signature on this seemingly ordinary landscape. It's just so beautiful how you describe your farm. Well, thank you very much. But when you're when you're an organic farmer, you work close with the land, with the soil. The dirt is alive. It's not something dead that you just stick stick a tree in. We always work with life, and we work with legacy, because we forget. You know, we've been on this farm for you know maybe sixty, seventy, eighty years. But that's my to understand the other dynamics. And a side note, I know, has to do with like in California, especially in farming, there's a lot of concern about water. And that legacy of water, of the aquifers, that was formed centuries and centuries ago. And that's part of the legacy to understand the land that we work and also understand that's the legacy that the food we eat come from and that's part of the story and that's why in secret harvest i talk so much about how the land and the food we grow are also part of this japanese american story and the specific story of my lost aunt who came back to uh in, the, in many ways came back to us, came back to the farm and is now part of, you know, each organic peach and nectarine that we grow and hopefully are part of that taste and flavor of the fruits that are from our farm. Well, we will talk about your aunt after a quick break. Today, we're speaking with David Mas Masamoto, an organic peach and grape farmer and the author of 12 books, including his new beautiful memoir, Secret Harvests, a hidden story of separation and the resilience of a family farm. This is your call. We'll be back after this. 
This is your call. I'm Rose Aguilar. Today, we're spending the hour with David Moss Masumoto, who is out with a new book, Secret Harvests, A Hidden Story of Separation and Resilience of a Family Farm. It tells the story of his aunt, Shiziko, who was disabled and taken as a ward of the state in 1942, just before the rest of his family were forced into World War II concentration camps. For 70 years, the family believed Shiziko had died until one day Moss received a call. She was alive at age 92 and living just a few miles away from the family farm. Moss, it's such an incredible story. Tell us about what you heard about Shiziko when you, grew, we were, when you were growing up. We heard practically nothing about her. Uh, and, you know, any kind of family photos or anything, there was no history of her uh so we had vaguely heard of her and and we have to realize back in that generation in that era uh there was a lot of 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 infant mortality because you know healthcare wasn't that well and i remember going to um um, japanese american mausoleum in fresno uh, on memorial day and different times and seeing these plaques of on the sugimoto my mom's side seeing these plaques of of these names of people, I go, I don't know these people. And one was uh, Akiko Sugimoto, and the only date on it was 1925. And the story was, I guess she died in childbirth or died as an infant. We didn't know. So there are these always these holes in our families. And again, people just need to ask. You will find in almost every family these type of gaps, these holes, these names, uh, and it's worth asking about. So we had vaguely heard of Shizuko, but not too much at all. Uh, so when I got this phone call uh, that, you know, this Shizuko was, was alive in Fresno, I didn't believe it because I said, no, 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 I know my family. And, and, and no, she's not alive. She has passed away. Uh, and it began this new journey into trying to think, well, wait a minute, who is this person? And try to explore that. And again, realize this was part of that legacy of family that's buried in a family secret. So I knew I had to be careful and cautious about this, as opposed to just simply saying, wait a minute, who's this? And asking my mom, what really happened? Uh, because there is so much of history that's woven into that. As you write, when Shizuko was a child in 1925, she got meningitis and it attacked her brain and she became intellectually disabled. That was meningitis was treatable in the 1920s with the advent of penicillin, but those treatments were not accessible for immigrant families. Can you tell us more about that? I think you have to try to imagine that moment in history. You know, we were... Our family were farm workers. They were poor. They weren't part of of any type of mainstream America. Also realized two factors. One, uh, they didn't speak English. So they they couldn't just phone a doctor and say, come come to us. Uh, And the second thing is a lot of medical facilities were church oriented back then. They were based around a church of a faith. We were Buddhist. We were the pagans, the heathens. And there was this, always this, this stigma. Would they, these hospitals treat the non-believers? Uh, and so there was this no question that they weren't going to get help. Uh, penicillin wasn't available to us. Uh, the family, from what I understood, didn't even bother trying to take her to a doctor. Uh, they just said, we're just going to try to live with this. And as it turned out that as I learned later that you know meningitis which was like a a, a plague that was uh, going around different parts of uh the country uh was killing a lot of children and a lot of infants but if you did the demographics which we don't have much data on they were probably poor probably rural and probably disconnected with the america medical system but it was a, it was a sign uh, a symbol of who we were at that moment in time you you also say that your family took care of Shiziko, but she was hidden like so many people with disabilities. Understand that the disability she had was an intellectual mental disability. Her, 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 her development stopped at about age five. Hmm. 
So as she continued to grow older, she was this four or five year old. Uh, and my mom was seven years younger. So when my mom was born and going through her childhood, you know, Shizuko was this older sister that was very confusing. And my mom was actually scared of Shizuko because Shizuko, apparently the story was love to throw things, you know, and maybe that's how she expressed herself. And my mom was terrified because Shizuko would throw things at, at my mom. Uh, my other aunt uh, was uh, closer to Shizuko's age and was really part of her caregiving team. And, and again, to make a note, there was this caregiving team all around Shizuko, even after she became a ward of the state that took care of her. And this was just an amazing fact that, that I did not want to overlook as part of this story. So as Shizuko grew up, my family did the best they could to take care of her. Of course, she didn't go to school because they didn't have special ed programs back then. There was a lot of discrimination against people with disabilities because they weren't normal and especially uh, intellectual or mental disability because they were in many ways considered to be something a family should be ashamed of. And that that quality of shame permeated many, many families, especially in the Japanese and Asian communities. And it still resonates today where people don't want to talk about that that one child, that one relative, because there was something wrong with them. And especially in a mental, intellectual disabilities, as if somehow it was genetic and they take blame for that. Uh, and so Shizuko was, grew up pretty isolated. There is an irony, though, that as farm workers, they would often take her out to the fields with her. So she would, uh, from the stories I heard, she found a kind of solace out in the country, laying under a grapevine, uh, laying under a peach tree and on a you know, stack of leaves and found some kind of harmony in that. And the way I reframed it, especially as I began to farm more and more, understanding the, the bias we have against, quote, normal and understanding that type of specificity that's involved with growing things organically and living with organic life around you, which includes the, quote, abnormal, which includes those with a disability. They're part of this landscape. And I totally could understand how Shizuko maybe found some comfort and that she was accepted out in nature or it was human nature that wouldn't accept her. And she was living just a few miles away from your family farm the entire time? The story that I began to piece together was Shizuko was about 19 in 1942. Uh, uh, and the family got word, uh, short-term notice, that they were going to have to be relocated to this prison someplace. And again, realized they didn't know where they were going to go. Because uh, I heard stories of like people packing up coats because they're afraid they're going to go to a place that snowed and they ended up in southern Arizona in the desert and that. Uh, but the family didn't know what to do because would they be able to find and take care of Shizuko? Would this new whatever this place was, have any kind of facilities to help someone with an intellectual disability. So uh, they realized maybe they could contact the authorities and they contacted the sheriff. And the sheriff said, you know, we could maybe put her in these um, facilities that handle people with, you know, mental illness, as they called it back then, that were, quote, mentally retarded, as the term was used back then. So they gave her up to be a ward of the state. And the stories that I understand is I think she went to Porterville, which had a large institution for those with an intellectual disabilities. And she spent many years there and then was transferred up to Auburn and a, a, a camp that they had up there for these uh, people with an intellectual disability there. And she spent the time there from what I could tell in little records that I could uh, un. Uh, gather until the early 70s when uh, then Governor Reagan had passed the regulations to decentralize these institutions. And from the early 70s, she came back to the Fresno area. And for these decades, she lived close to us. Uh, and 
There's one story that I write about in Secret Harvest where my grandmother, who as as age, uh, we couldn't take care of her, so she uh, went into a a, 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 a assisted care facility. And I remember going there with my, my future wife, Marcy, and Marcy saw this name, uh, Shizuko Sugimoto, on one of the beds. And she goes, oh, Sugimoto, that's your mom's name. Is this your family? And I remember saying, no. I know all my family that can't be related. And as it turns out, I believe that was Shizuko in the same facility that my grandmother was. But we didn't know that. We didn't put that together. And then later in 2012, I get this phone call that she's alive in Fresno. Again, a few miles from our family farm. Today we're speaking with Mas Masumoto about his new memoir, Secret Harvests, A Hidden Story of Separation and the Resilience of a Family Farm. Mas Masumoto is an organic peach and grape farmer and the author of 12 books. You can learn more about him and his work at yourcallradio.org. You briefly mentioned caregiving a couple of minutes ago, but I'd love to spend a little more time on this because... As you write about in your book, how did Shizuko survive 70 years of institutional care? And I love how you write about her caregivers. You write, Shizuko's caregivers manifest an invisible army of philanthropists. They give to help beyond their job descriptions. They assist in ways obscured and hidden. The poor are assigned to care for others in need. The poor who give the most dedicate themselves to the care for the poor. People of color labor in a system that often penalizes people of color, yet they journey onward. The compassion I witness brutally exposes the world that envelops my family and the history we cannot escape and yet continues to define us. Can you talk more about this? Because I think this is so important, really exploring the role of Shizuko's caregivers and millions of caregivers around the country who are doing this work as we're speaking right now. Rose, thank you for highlighting this section of of the book and also the section of our lives. You know, as as I probed more into the story, one of the questions was, who took care of physical? Um, again, she had the, the the intellectual capacity of about a five-year-old. She was a child. And yet she lived until she was 92 through all these institutions and you have these images of these institutions and they were brutal for many people. But Shizuko managed to, to weave her way through this, this, this path. And as I found out, it was because people took care of her. They cared for her. Uh, and, and these caregivers were the ones that really were part of this story. They were Shizuko's family. And one of the brutal, harsh realities when I first began to visit Shizuko, uh, uh, one of the uh, the uh, uh, housekeepers at one of these facilities asked me, who are you? And I said, well, I'm Shizuko's nephew. And this gentleman looked at me and said, where have you been all these years? Oh, and wow. he was brutally right because uh, Shizuko's family were these caregivers that went out of their way to care for her. And most of these people were people of color. They were not paid well. They were not treated well. Uh, they were taking care of, you know, these tens of thousands, millions of, of people who were forgotten and invisible. And it was this invisible army who took care of these hidden stories that are all part of our farms, of our families. And I have to say, this moved me almost more than anything, because it was certainly a chapter of a family saga, a family history we don't think about. We don't think about those others that help us and help our families define who we are. And I wanted to highlight that because their stories, and I couldn't get much of the stories, right, because of all those generations and decades of caregivers, I couldn't locate. Uh, there was one quick story when she was in uh, DeWitt Hospital uh, up in Auburn area. and She was there for probably about 20 years. I did locate a music teacher who didn't, who couldn't specifically remember Shizuko because DeWitt had 10,000 in uh, residents at this facility. But she told a story 
about how these residents, and they all had a type of intellectual disability, she would teach them how to play music. She would give them percussion instruments. And I joked with her that, oh, what was the sound like? Because in my interactions with Shizuko, Shizuko liked to pound on things. She liked to just make all these different noises and ta-ta-ta and that. And certainly in rhythm and out of rhythm at the same time. So I asked this music teacher, you know, uh, how did you take deal with this sound? It certainly had to be disruptive to her being a music teacher who is a musician herself. And she stopped me and said, no, it was music to my ears. Hmm. And I had to stop and, 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 you know, gasp and realize how important that was for those people to care at that level. And understand that's this dynamic of people who took care of Shizuko and allowed me to write this story. And this line, Moss, is so important. You write, existing systems would crumble if it were not for the work of caregivers. Absolutely. They're they're that invisible army that's around us all the time. And we tend to not recognize them. They tend to be hidden and they tend not to be rewarded at all. Uh, I remember after afterwards, I tend to try to at least every year take some uh, organic peaches and our best peaches to this assisted care center. And mm-hmm. I remember when I took, you know, the box, 10 boxes to them and I sat them on the counter, people would said, what are this for? What are these for? Are they, are we supposed to buy them? And I said, no, they're for you. And I realized they're not used to getting gifts. Oh. They're not get, They're not getting that kind of recognition. And my heart just bleeds at that moment for that. So those are the little acts of kindness and recognition that I hope uh, this secret harvest and the whole story brings to life. Those kind of stories that are all around us. What was it like for the rest of your family when you told them that Shizuko was alive? As you write, it's a, it was a complicated moment for your family. Very complicated. Uh, uh, some of the early responses that I got from, you know, my aunts, uncles, and, and, and my mom were they couldn't believe it. And they almost wanted to say I had to be lying. Uh, and then some of the response was this twisted and totally understandable reality that set in. They suddenly felt game, uh, guilt and shame that they said, Oh, she's alive. And felt terrible about what happened and stuff. And we did this very gradual process of slowly introducing her to family. And they came to visit her. And just as a side note, when I was first contacted uh, about Shizuko, she had gotten a coma. She had gotten a stroke. And she was in a coma. And uh, uh, she had some money set aside by the government to take care of her last rites. So it was a funeral home in Fresno that initially phoned me and uh and it was shocking to get this phone call from a funeral home and we all thought Shizuko would pass within the first couple weeks days and weeks and it turns out the caregivers this is not in a hospital or ICU setting the caregivers knew how to feed her even though she was in a coma and she woke up three months later so we had the second family reunion with Shizuko who was now alive and and going moving around in this uh, assisted care center so we had these waves of introducing her to family and I think that was really important because it was a shock and it took time for the shock to settle in and slowly these stories to go public and it was now okay to talk about some of these family family secrets. Hmm. Right. That's, that's, that was my last question before we end the show today. Given that you had a hard time getting your family to tell secrets and stories about incarceration, how is your family responding to this book, given that you're sharing so many of your family's stories with the world? My family's been amazing. I, I totally understood some of them might have some reservations about the story going public because again perhaps if i was a better fiction writer i could have wrote, written this as a fictional piece and changed names and it would have been different but but i'm not i'm a non-fiction writer so this was all about telling the truth but part of the truth is also the gaps in knowledge and understanding the context 
of history, the context of emotions back in 1925 or in 1942 when your family was being told that they were the enemy. So I try to write with that voice and my family's been wonderful in terms of accepting that. Uh, I was a little nervous with uh, some aunts and uncles, uh, how they would respond, but they would have been fantastic because they realized this is all part of all our family stories. This must be so special for the younger members of your family. Oh, it definitely is because it starts filling these gaps on a personal level. Mm-hmm. And that's why one of the, one of the, 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 the calling I have to all families is ask stories of your family yes. at holidays, at events, ask these stories so you can get those stories. And uh, sometimes when I do readings and events, I ask people, do you have family secrets? And you'd be amazed at the stories that people tell. Uh, one really quick story was I did this exercise where people would say, what would be a question you would wonder about your family and ask them? And this one woman uh, told me her story that she grew up and her mom said her dad had passed away. And then when her and her sister went to Mexico to visit an aunt, the aunt said, would you like to meet your grandfather? Oh, wow. It was this dynamic of these stories that are part of our legacy. Mm. Well, Moss, it is a beautiful book. Thank you so much for sharing your family's story with us. We didn't have that much time to talk about you as an organic farmer. And we do so many shows about farmers and farm workers and the soil and pesticides and water. We would love to have you back to spend oh. more time about the, on that because farming is a, a big part of the book. But we'd love to have a broader conversation with you about food and farming and where we're going in this country. Oh, thank you very much, Rose. I would love to do that because these are all stories that are we literally taste and, and, and feed our souls with it, too. So thank you very much for this opportunity. I would love to come back and talk more. And when peaches are in season, we would love to have some of your peaches. <laughs> we will figure out a way to make that happen. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. David Moss Masumoto is out with a new beautiful memoir, Secret Harvests, A Hidden Story of Separation and the Resilience of a Family Farm. He's an organic peach and grape farmer and the author of 12 books, including Epitaph for a Peach. Four Seasons on a Family Farm. You can find more information about Mas Masumoto at yourcallradio.org. Thanks to Savannah Harriman Pote for producing today's show. Thanks to Kevin Vance for engineering our show. You can find all of our past shows and the shows that we are doing about Japanese internment at yourcallradio.org. You can also sign up to listen to our podcast there. Thanks for joining us. I'm Rose Aguilar. It's your call. <laughs>